Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten, because this is Club Book. This season consists of both in-person library events as well as virtual facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. That will include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. So with that, I will turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Welcome to Club Book with Oscar Hokia. My name is Mona Susan Power and I am a Yankton Dakota writer who lives in Minnesota. As we get started, we would like to take a moment to acknowledge the Dakota people, indigenous keepers of the land on which most of us are joining this virtual event from today. This land was reserved for the Dakota in the Treaty of Traverse de Sioux, signed with the United States in 1851, and it remains sacred to us today. We also acknowledge the Ojibwe people, fellow indigenous inhabitants of this land. The Dakota and Ojibwe people are the original stewards of story in this place now called Minnesota. The organizers of Club Book honor this tradition and the knowledge and values embedded in it, as we all work together to lift up storytellers in our state. Before I introduce tonight's guest properly, allow me a moment to tell you a bit more about the unique series that is bringing him to us. Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Hennepin County Library is the co-organizer of this evening's talk. Thanks also to partnering bookseller, the wonderful Red Balloon Bookshop. Now for our featured event, Oscar Hokia is a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and the Kiowa Tribe of Oklahoma. He also proudly claims Mexican ancestry on his father's side. His wonderful, amazing award-winning fiction explores intertribal identity and multicultural heritage. Hokia honed his craft at the prestigious Institute of American Indian Arts, and his prose can be found in American short fiction, World Literature Today, and Literary Hub. Algonquin Books released Hokia's first novel, Calling for a Blanket Dance, to wide acclaim in July 2022. Like the author himself, intrepid protagonist ever, Gima Saddle, comes from a family that is part Native American, part Mexican. Quote, drawing on a wealth of indigenous tradition, calling for a blanket dance underscores the quiet strength that arises when family is true to its identity and the too common tragedy that results when identity is suppressed, the millions. After a short talk, by our guest and some initial questions coming from me, we'll have time for audience Q&A. Simply drop your questions in the comments thread here on Facebook and our tech manager will route them to me. If you'd prefer to contribute a question a bit more anonymously, you can also send a private message to Club Book here on Facebook or send an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com. So um, now I would like to uh, invite Oscar Hokia to take over for a little while and um, share with us um, some of his story, where he comes from, and how he came to write his, his wonderful novel. And I think he's going to read some excerpts. Um, I'm super excited to be here. I'm very grateful to Club Vote. I'm very grateful for Mona for um 
joining me um, on this session today. And, and uh, I'm very excited about this event for a long time. Um, so I'm a super fanboy of Mona's work. And we got a Council of Dolls is coming out in August. Is that right, Mona? Okay. Yeah, so it's coming out in August. And so get your pre-orders. It's an amazing, amazing book. And um, so, but yeah, just super excited to be here. And I'm going to talk today a little bit about, well, I guess this is what we're going to talk about today. But this is the debut novel. Uh, and I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a little bit and um, from two different sections. I'll talk a little bit about those sections and and how they ended up in the book. And what it'll, it'll do, it'll give me an opportunity to kind of connect it back to my own kind of personal life and, you know, how I chose to write about certain characters and and then where, where they showed up in my life and how how I alter um, real circumstances in, uh, and make them fiction. Um, so it's just kind of a method that I use uh, when I when I write. To start off with, I'd like to jump, we're going to jump kind of deep into the into the debut. Um, so the 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 main character of the novel is Everett Gimasato, like Mona had mentioned. And um, so it follows his life. And every chapter is read by a different family member. And so um, we hear from grandma, grandpa, aunties, uncles, cousins, siblings. And then in the last chapter, Everett Gimasato speaks for himself. And so what I'm going to do is I'd like to jump to uh, a chapter of the second. It's the actually I think it's the third to last chapter, and um, this is Leander Chesna. And so Leander Chesna is Evergimasato's adopted son. So when we get to this point in the novel, um, um, Saddle is an adult. When we first start off, he's six months old, and so we see him kind of grow, and, and uh, we see these kind of obstacles that pop up for him. So he's um, becoming more and more aggressive. And, and the um, and the concern is if he's going to be able to beat that. Is he going to be a problem for the community, or is he going to figure out a way to be a healing solution uh, for the community? And so we get to a point um, in the novel where we hear from um, his his adopted son, and we get to take you know his perspective. And so Leander Leander Chesna was born out of. Um, born out of my work working with that risk native youth because Leander is I mean he's you know he's even a novel and so Everett Gimasato comes into life um whenever he's about 16, 17 years old and then um takes him into his home. Um he's highly aggressive. Um the only alternate alternative for him outside of this um him going into what's called what we call treatment foster care or therapeutic foster care is that he would have to go to a detention center. He's too aggressive going to like a regular kind of boy's home. Um, and so whenever I first started out my career working with that risk native youth, I started working in group homes. Going with a little Apache and Dene youth. And so a similar situation that, that plays out in the novel and I from life in that uh, I was working in this group home, they lost their funding for the group home. And so, but they needed individuals to start doing therapeutic foster care. Um, so working with the more intense youth, because at that point, our youth only had a choice. They were going to either go to detention or um, or they could go into a therapeutic foster home who had, you know, because these foster parents have a special skill set. And um, so similar situation as myself. And so I just took that situation and I put it into, into the novel um, where Leander is, went to, goes to live with Evergima Saddle whenever he's, you know, 16 and he's kind of out of control, he's hyper aggressive. And, um, and Leander's personality is um, based on a lot of the guys that I grew up with. And so the setting in that particular chapter is in Lawton, Oklahoma, which is on the Southern Plains. And Lawton is, um, I'm, it's a, it's, I, I, I was like a gritty kind of environment. Um, there's not like a whole lot of money in the in that community. Um, so we have you know communities that feel um, very urban. It's not like a super big city. Um, it's it's I mean, it's a lot smaller than Oklahoma City and that surrounding area. You know you have about a million people around Oklahoma City area, whereas whereas Lawton might be like maybe sixty thousand, eighty thousand, something like that. Um, so it's smaller, but it's it's probably as urban 
has areas that are as urban, if not more urban than Oklahoma. Um, and a lot of people will say that Lawton is probably a more um, dangerous environment uh, just because, you know, the lack of, you know, economics that, you know, that play out in that area. And so that's the, that's the environment that Leander grows up in. And um, so he's based off a lot of the, you know, guys that I grew up with, with, you know, Kyle Comanche guys that are in my family, some of them were my cousins, um, some were guys from the neighborhood. Um, so in the south side of Lawton, we call it, there's an area called the View. And in the View, there's like, I want to say maybe 10, 12 blocks on the south side of Lawton. And they're all Kiowa Comanche people. They're, they're, they're built by the Comanche Nation. And, um, and it's in the poorest part of town. And so, um, but the individuals who live there, you know, like you know, on the Southern Plains, a lot of us, a lot of Kiowans and Comanches are intermarried. And so, like all my cousins are Kiowa Comanche mix, and so those neighborhoods are neighborhoods are all filled with Kiowa Comanches, um, and, and so it's kind of that you know I grew up in. That's where all my cousins grew up there as well. So when I was in Lawton, that's that's where I was living, and so I grew up between Tahlequah and Lawton, Oklahoma. So my Cherokee sides up in or here in Tahlequah where I live today, um, but Leander grew up in this very aggressive environment, and um, and so Everett Gimasaddle, the main character, comes into his life and tries to to alter the trajectory that he's on um, because um, he grew up in a similar situation. And so he understands Leander's struggle. And so in a certain way, Leander has it worse off than Evergema Saddle because ever had um, family members who were stable enough to kind of pick him back up, you know, whenever he was slipping and sliding, whereas Leander, both of his parents are incarcerated and um, he doesn't have extended family member who can step in and, um, and kind of pick him up. So we're going to see Leander um, as a teenager, but this is at a point after Eric Gimasada has been working with him uh, for a couple of years and trying to help him overcome that aggression. And so this is the last section in that particular chapter. And so we've seen a lot of ups and downs with him between Ever and Leander and getting and, um, to a point where Leander's similar to where Ever was at a certain point in his life where he's got to make a choice and we get to see whether he's going to make that choice or not. Um, so I'm just going to dive in, um, dive in here. So this is, this is Leander Chestnut. The only thing that kept me from putting myself back into detention was the local teen center. I was allowed to go between noon and three because that's when the other kids were in school. I was around adult staff for three hours, but they were cool and I could play video games, lift weights, play basketball, get on the computer, or play pool. A few months later, Ever found me a volunteer job for a boys and, boys and girls club. He pulled some strings and he set up some rules like zero tolerance. And I had to have an adult staffer with me at all times. He put his reputation on the line. My job was to help elementary school kids with their homework after school. They'd all drive to the club after three on buses. Sometimes we'd play dodgeball or basketball after all the homework was done. After being there for a few weeks, I started to teach a few of the kids how to draw. I liked the aggressive kids. They made me laugh with some of the things they would say. I taught them how to draw lowriders and smile now, cry later faces. After about a month of teaching drawing on the side, the director of the club caught wind and she she made it an official class, my art class. My peers at the club were my age, but they weren't kids from the ghetto. Most of them were white. These teens were overachievers, talked about getting mad about a B on a test, or argue with each other about which was better, University of Oklahoma or Oklahoma State. Teens with aspirations were freaks to me. They actually wanted to be leaders in the community. At first, I'd tell them to shut up if they even walked up to me. They reminded me of the kid I had to pop in the mouth at the high school. But then they com complimented my drawing, and a few of them joined my class. They were afraid of me, and they didn't talk shit. I liked that. After a while, I started to check myself a lot on a lot of things, like my language and talk about thugging. It was different, but I wanted to be a good influence and ever found a GED class for me. I went from GED class to the teen center and then to the boys and girls club every day. I hung out with Ever and his family on the weekends. 
if we weren't at the powwows, we'd be at the gym or a park. Something happened. Still, every day it seemed I woke up hardcore angry. I don't know why. One morning, we were running late for my GED class. Ever barked at me a few times, rushing me, and I got agitated. I was trying to hold in all my anger. That morning, we climbed into Ever's car. I blast him and I clenched my fist and I started to growl like those mangy stray dogs running down the alleys. I tapped my knuckles on the dash. I wanted to slam my fist into the windshield and splinter it. I'd watched my father do that once. I visualized it clearly, my knuckles banging into the glass and the glass cracking under the force and my knuckles filling with blood. If I could do that to a window, I thought, what could I do to Ever's face? He snapped at me. You took too long as, we, as he sped out of the parking, apartment parking lot. I reached the side pocket of the door and pulled out a pencil. I gripped it to stab him in the throat. I visualized that too, how the car would swerve and crash, how I'd get out of the car and run. I looked at Ever's face, his long black hair and a tight ponytail. Suddenly, I couldn't remember what my own father looked like. Did he look like ever? Why did I care? Did it really fucking matter anymore? Ever was the one rushing to get me to school on time. He was stressing out to help me. He showed up every day, rain or shine, good or bad. I reached back over to the side pocket and pulled out a pad. I quickly made myself draw. I suppose Ever was right about small expectations. They rise like water. Yeah, no, so that's where we get you. We get Leander right at that, you know, that pivotal point in his life where um, Ever has been trying to get him to redirect his anger. And what he does, and I did this as well with my youth when I was working with them, because um, they were great visual artists. I would buy, I bought like stacks of drawing pads and I bought a ton of pencils and, um, and I would put them all around the house and I put them in my car. And anytime they would feel aggressive, feel like they were starting to get agitated, you know, they would have something near them they could pick up and they just start drawing. And mm -hmm. so every game saddle does the same thing for Leander Chesna in the in the novel. And so there's a pad and a pen right there um, next to him. And so this is the first time he's ever done it on his own. Like typically, in the, as, the, at the, as that chapter plays out, Ever is asking him. As soon as he starts getting agitated, Ever's like, mm -hmm. you want to draw? You, you want me to go get you a pad and pencil? So Ever's initiating it. Mm -hmm. So at this point, right, in, um, Leanne, you know, he takes the initiative. Nobody has to tell him, hey, you're upset. Why don't you start drawing? He just does it himself. And so it indicates that moment of change, that shift in his personality where he's realizing, you know, that he can control, he can do it himself. He doesn't have to have someone around him uh, to guide him. So, um, so yeah, so yeah, Leander Chesna, I mean, like I said, um, based off of a lot of the guys I grew up with, we, there's a young man that in my my cousin Quincy Tosh Carl were close to his, his name was BJ Chesna and um big I mean he was 13 he was already six foot tall when he was 13 he was just a big guy a really big guy and um he was aggressive in, in, um and he ended up going to prison as an as an adult um but we had too many too many of us in that neighborhood who either ended up prison you know I lost a lot of um, when I was a teenager I was losing, you know, Kyle Comanche relatives and um, my brothers and sisters in the community were getting killed um, because this was back in the 90s. And then the 90s is, you know, referred to as that drive-by era. And that was just a common feature, you know, back then in the neighborhood, you would hear just random gunshots, you know, especially on the weekends, you know, you had to be really careful about um, um, who you were around and um, where you were at, what neighborhood you were in. Um, I think that, you know, me and my cousin Quincy, we were we were lucky in that we were the youngest um, of all the cousins. Um, and so our older cousins, you know, knew a lot, ton, knew everybody in the neighborhood and everybody, a lot of people in Lawton in general. And um, and, you know, in hindsight, after, you know, after we became adults, we realized that, you know, they were telling other people in the, in the community, like, you know, don't mess with them, leave alone. And so because we were so young, you know, like we got protected, we yeah. got protected in ways that others in the community didn't get protected. Yeah. Um, 
so but Leander is kind of based off of some of those individuals who who um who were um who unfortunately um didn't get that kind of direction so um but yeah Leander's kind of an homage to to those those young men that I that I grew up with um, so what I what I like to do next mm -hmm. is um read just a little section out of um Op E she's the second to last character and Op E Gimasado is super important in the book I mean this is a you know big pivotal point for ever Gimasado himself um so like I mentioned before in the previous chapter he is um he's an adult he has kids he has he has three biological kids and he also has Leander who he's adopted and um and he's fallen at this point in the novel he's kind of fallen on hard times and um Op E is his relative I mean she's a distant relative who's never really met him because um because every Gimasado's mother um grew up in Lawton whereas Op E grew up in Carnegie which is north of Lawton and so and Op E is much older is like an older cousin to to Ever's mother um so um so he would be she would be like kind of like an aunt like a great aunt yeah um but Op E in Kiowa the translation uh, is big sister but it also translates to great grandmother it's the same word hmm. means the same um and it speaks to that cyclicality of life and it's also a term of respect you know like if you read a, reach a certain you know age or if you you know you're a, a, someone that a lot of people will you know, have respect for because you maybe you hold a lot of cultural knowledge or you're an embedded part of the community hmm. um you might be called op e you might be called big sister um, and that it's it's signaling that someone respects you if someone calls you big sister. And um, on the male side, have something called, we have a segi, and so segi in its direct mundane translation just means uncle. It directly translates to the mother's brother, um, who is an important familial figure in our families. Um, but segi is also similar, where it's like a you know I might call someone segi who's not really my uncle at all, but I'm you know I'm saying I respect you if I say if I call him segi instead of his name. Um, but Op E is that kind of a figure in the community, and um, and so she comes into she comes to find Evergimasado um, at a powwow, and um, and then immediately starts to recognize who he might be, and starts to make connections. She starts to make connections between Evergimasado and his mother, but also Evergimasado and his grandmother Lena Stop, um, who is the first character in the novel. Um, but you'll start to see some of those um, some of those dynamics, relationships play out in this particular chapter. And there's like some cyclicality that happens there, but what we'll, what I'm just going to read a couple of pages here, and we'll get a sense of his relationship to Evergimasado. But we're also going to get to see how the community wraps around each other um, whenever things are getting hard, and what that might look like in a Kiowa Comanche way, or in the Southern Plains. A lot of Southern Plains tribes um, do some do this as well. So, mm -hmm. all right, we got Opsi Gimasado, 2010. But all those years, and I thought Lena was Kiowa. Didn't even find out until last year at her funeral. The preacher pulled me aside and asked, Op E, do you know Lena's clan? I made a face, slapped him in the arm like he was joshing. Because Kiowas didn't have clans. Then he went and told me Lena was Cherokee. Ugh, here I thought she was Koi all my life. Uncle Vincent had first brought her around when I was just an ankle biter. I must have been 10 or 11 years old at the time. This was before they had Uncle Vincent and Aunt Nina would travel from Lawton to Carnegie for family visits. Once they had Lila, they visited less. Then after Turtle hardly came around, I always remembered Lena because of the quilt she gave me. Then I saw Everett at the Gort dance selling quilts made me think of his grandmother, Lena. I watched Hank Quitone spread a, spread a Pendleton on the floor in the middle of the powwow arena, not too far from the singers. I thought the societies were honoring the drum, taking up a collection. I, I think it was Scissor Tail or maybe Rocky Boys. We invited singers from different parts, say. But it turned out that the blanket wasn't for the drum. It was for my nephew, Ever, his three littles and his adopted son, Leander. Leander worked over in Lawton at the tire plant, so he wasn't there that day. I ever before, even though he was my naive, 
He was a nephew through my cousin Turtle, who I hardly knew. Uncle Vincent had relocated to Lawton after he served in the Korean War to find a job. There wasn't much work in Carnegie, so Kyle was off to move to Lawton or Anadarko or Oklahoma City. It surprised me to see Ever at the powwow. He had our family's distinctive look with arms long enough to reach the top of a roof. I couldn't help but think of his mama, the way the corners of his mouth turned downward with sharp lines. But I suppose all us Gimasados had this similarity. Ever, ever led his kids into the arena and they walked behind him from oldest to youngest, like a family of ducks crossing a busy road. They came to stand behind the Pendleton blanket. Sean was 10 and the oldest. He took after my uncle Vincent something fierce. Then there was Shiloh, nine and built broad like his cheeky side. Shandy crawled into my heart as soon as I saw those pigtails. She was eight, but had a younger spirit about her. Hank Quitone had a microphone in his hand and he announced, I'm calling for a blanket dance. This is for my nephew Ever Gimasettle and his kids. The company he worked for lost all its funding so he was laid off and his car was repossessed. He's having a hard time getting his kids to and from school. We're asking for any help you can offer. An elder Botone handed Ever a gort rattle. Then I saw Hank's wife, my cousin Lila, carrying a Gort Club shawl, baby blue, into the arena and heading for Shandy. The shawl was too big, so Lila folded it in half. Shandy shrugged to hold a large shawl over her shoulders, shifting this way and that, the way Littles did. None of them had any regalia. They wore jeans and T-shirts, all folded alongside the blanket, waiting for the drummers to start the song. I've seen many blanket dances in my day growing up coy but there was something especially heartbreaking about a single parent down on their luck. Many of us, most of us, could see ourselves in Ever. Like we had either been there, or we had either been where he was or feared we'd end up there. We were taught to give or else more would be taken. Streams of people walked into the arena while drum beats and voices filled Red Buffalo Hall. We crumpled bills in our hands and tossed them onto the blanket. We stood next to Ever and his three kids and danced alongside. Must have been a good 30 people out there. The line of people made a half circle around the drum. Ever to one side with the Pendleton blanket spread in front of them. Some gort dancers moved through the arena while the singers heavy and low voices carried through our bodies. We danced the way Kyle was danced when called by our people, by our ancestors, to help each other heal. Richard Hank Quitone yelled into the microphone, so beautiful. All the dancers dipped a little lower and rose a little higher to the drumbeat, and the singers prayed for our spirits, calling for our ancestors. Step into the arena, dance with us, honor this young man and his children. By the time the song was finished, the blanket was filled from edge to edge, with crumpled dollar bills, and we were filled with a renewed energy. Sometimes a blanket dance can fill up your spirit, and this was one of those moments. I'll never forget it. A gift. And I'll stop right there. And so that's, you know, that's a moment in, in Ever's life, you know, where we, and then we get to see how the community, you know, it has these certain customs and rituals, you know, I think, yeah, I think every tribal community that I know of that I've, that I've been able to witness has something similar, if not exactly that same blanket dance, but something similar where they step in and they help each other out, um, get through some of these hard moments in their lives. Um, but yeah, so that that's, up, and that's just a little bit of taste of calling for a blanket dance for those of you who haven't had a chance to, um, to read the debut. Thank you so much. And for any of you who haven't yet read this remarkable book. I I just cannot praise it highly enough. Uh, really do yourself a, a huge favor and read this book. It's just remarkable. And it was such a pleasure to reread it uh, recently. And then it's also wonderful to hear you read from it. You, you were you you did the you were able to see this is why I have my notes to read from because otherwise <laughs> I'm stuck and I babble. You didn't only do a remarkable job in writing these distinctly unique voices 
um, 12 very different voices. But when you read them, it's amazing how much your voice really changes too. Your accent changes. It's mm -hmm. um, so I'm very glad that you're one of the readers of the Audible. I haven't listened to it yet, but now I want to listen to it because you're just so good at performing. Um, yeah, I was really I was really excited that I got to audition. <laughs> I got to audition for that. <laughs> That's so funny. And, it, and it's and it's just because of what you had mentioned, where it's really distinct. You know, like that Kiowa sound is very distinct. And um, and they picked up on like the you know Algonquin picked up on it right away, and they were like, okay, well you're gonna we want you to read it so you can capture those nuances. Um, but yeah, it's fun. It's fun to to do that because Leander's got like this rough kind of voice, mm -hmm. you know, and then I'll be you know completely different personality different. that okay. just kind of puts me at ease. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, let me let me look at my remarks so I don't get myself lost in the weeds of my babbling. Um, I just wanted to say uh, just a few things in praise of this of this uh, book. I was, as I said, I was impressed by the utterly distinct voices of each of your narrators and how much I believe in each and every one of them. There wasn't a false note in the in the entire novel, and also how the title of the novel encapsulates what's happening in the book itself. The novel being a story about how a community comes together in their different ways to stand with this central character of ever. Um, the stunning writing, the use of language, so many favorite lines. I just I just have to say a few favorites that jumped out, like um, Lena says about Turtle, her emotions barked like a blue tick. Um, and oh my goodness, um, uh, Araceli, uh, how do you pronounce her name, uh, Araceli? Araceli. Araceli. Um, I love, I love her voice so much. And when she said, I held on to old family resentment, like a piece of earth holds on to a tombstone. I just burst out laughing because yeah, I know some folks like that. And she also said, Kiowa's held on to lineage, like legacy was redemption. And yeah, that's a, that's a little bit of a Dakota thing too. Uh, not just the Kiowa's. Um, yeah. And also you gave me some near heart attack moments where I was so invested and worried about characters. I actually had to stop reading sometimes just to catch my breath and I'm not kidding. I just was like, okay, it's gonna be okay. You read the book before, it's gonna be okay. <laughs> um, examples are when Leander, that, that moment that you talked about where you know he's, he's um, so triggered by being rushed by Ever, even though Ever's doing you know, him a favor that you know, he's, he's thinking about stabbing him in the throat or when Opie is trying to get back the children's quilts that were sold, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm like, oh my God, I hope everybody, you know, is nice about it and we'll, we'll, we'll let her take those back. And then um, wondering if ever is ever going to be successful in claiming one of the Cherokee housing authorities repossessed houses. And I won't give away the ending because it, it for me, the suspense about that was almost like a thriller. I was mm. like, oh, please, oh, please let him get one of those houses. <laughs> you know? It was, yeah. I was just really upset or just worried for him. So as for some questions, um, uh, I'll start with this one. Uh, one of the themes that jumped out at me, given my own particular obsession was, of course, healing. I was amazed and impressed at how you were able to never pull punches when it came to showing the rugged experiences people and especially children can go through. And you mentioned like Leander and, and his rough time, but also like Lonnie Nowater. Mm -hmm. Yet you never leave us in a space of hopelessness. Mm -hmm. um, this novel uplifted me. You wrote so compassionately about this multi-generational community of characters, honestly, but without judgment. So there are two questions attached to this comment. One, was that care to avoid judgment a conscious choice or is it just part of who you are as a person, your natural inclination? And two, did the creation of this book offer up any moments of healing for you, the author? Yeah, no, yeah, those are those are good questions. It, I think that really it was just writing about, you know, my community and, you know, basically individuals who were loosely based on family and community members or friends that I grew up with that, um, that I guess I, you know, like, as I'm, you know, contemplating on, you know, see these circumstances that they've gone through that, you know, like, I don't particularly have those judgments myself. Um, and I just, you know, um, 
I just want to come at it in an honest way. You know, like I want to be genuine with, yeah. you know, with the, these experiences and with what we struggle with inside of the na native community. And, um, and I just, yeah, I guess it's just that I don't have those judgments myself, you, you know, dealing with, and there's some stuff in there that's um, pretty rough, you know, like Lonnie, no water, you know, how do you capture a character who is, who is, you know, strung out on drugs, you know, like, and that is, you know, you know, that completely alters your being, you know, on those kind of um, substances are pretty like meth is a pretty intense addiction, um, especially when you start the IV use. And, you know, it's, you know, it comes from being years and years. I mean, I've been working in the community with that risk native youth and, the, you know, their parents and the, the community members as well um, for almost 20 years now. And just having seen those situations over and over and over again. And, you know, I like for Cherokee Nation, I was a court worker for, for a while. And, um, and your, your task is to help. You know, like, I don't know if I could stay in this line of work for two decades and not believe that people can change. Mm -hmm. You know, like for me, that was important. I know that, the, you know, you know, and I have encountered individuals who feel like people can't change, you know, um, but I don't know if I could sustain myself if I didn't believe that. And that's and that's ultimately what I feel whenever I'm sitting down to write, you know, like, you know, these characters like um, even with Ever Gimasato's father, Eduardo, um, who is abusive, mm -hmm. you know, for me, and you asked this question, the question about what, you know, you know, healing moments that I have personally, and that was a big one, um, mm -hmm. because Eduardo is based off of my father. And so whatever Gimasato goes through in the book, I went through that with my own father. And in order for me, you know, because good writing captures characters from multiple angles, it's not you know, like, like someone can't, you know, like, I don't really like to write a character and they're just going to be like a straightforward victim or a, or a straightforward villain um, or a straightforward hero, you know, like I want, because in order for, and I need them to have all of those dynamics play out. Um, and so whenever it came to Eduardo, you know, like I saw him initially as a villain because it was based on my dad. And so it took me um, looking at that character through Adeseli's eyes, um, it took me lo looking because to Adeseli, Eduardo is her favorite uncle. Yeah. You know, like he was funny. Mm -hmm. He brought her candies, and he did all these like really special kind of things with her. And um, and he was like the family clown, and she was always making people laugh. So she had a different perspective about him than the main character did. And so, but but being able to like use her her lens to look at this character kind of gave me a a deeper insight into my own father, my own abuse that I grew up with. And not necessarily that it's, that it makes, um, makes it right, but it gave me the opportunity to forgive in a more deep, deeper way. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's kind of ongoing, you know, like I've always said that, you know, I will, you know, after my father passed away is when I really got close to him, you know, mm -hmm. after he had passed, you know, that I could, you know, he, it was like at a safe distance where I could have these kind of like um, internal reflections about who he was and um, why he was in those situations, why he um, made some of those choices that he made. And um, and just in the similar situation within the book where he had kidney issues, he, he was on medications, you know, he had to have surgery to, to remove his kidneys. And so um, and dialysis treatments, all these, you know, medical ailments that went on in his life that um, con contributed to that. Because earlier on, like whenever he first met my mother, um, he wasn't like that. Like my mother describes him as being like super silly, super funny. Um, everybody loved to be around him. And then after the years and years of having to deal with dialysis and all these medications, he's, his personality just slowly altered and altered. And he became much more dark. Like by the time I was a teenager, like I would, um, I would see him in, in Lawton. Like he lived in Lawton. And I'd be cruising around with my friends and I would see him, you know, but I would never say nothing to him. You know, he was just like, he was just some dude. Yeah. Like there's that dude walking down the street, but that was my dad, you know, mm -hmm. and same way. Like I would, I would talk to him, like maybe every three, four months I might talk to him and he would say, yeah, I saw you hanging out with your friends on that corner, but he would, he never, he never stopped to talk to me. You know, I was just some, I was just some kid, you know, and that's kind of the way that relationship was. Mm -hmm. Um, but in order for me to get that alternate kind of experience, I had to heal myself. I had to come to some some level of forgiveness. But there's moments like that throughout throughout the book. Mm -hmm. 
thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and I'm glad that you had that chance to, through your writing, um, I, I, I found that with the, the, the book, it, and thank you for the incredibly kind things you said about this new book, but it was really a, very much a healing venture for me, um, mm -hmm. spending time with. Yeah, I could, I could tell as I was reading it, like I could see your, your healing process in there. And I think that that helps, that helps me, you know, like as I'm reading your work. Um, come to a deeper understanding of that kind of um, wounding, you know, and how do how do I how do I, how did I get beyond certain things, and how do I still need to get beyond other things as well? But yeah, I think that that's it's helpful to to read stuff like that. And well, and the same, it was incredibly moving and helpful to read your book. And I'm noticing that there are more and more uh, very different voices, very different stories, but just more books coming out right now uh, that are addressing. Um, intergenerational trauma and healing mm -hmm. it's as if the generation has arrived that uh, has the bandwidth the the resources i don't just mean you know necessarily money but just the information out there to begin and the the cultural renewal programs to begin healing mm -hmm. and so and so now we're starting to also bring it out into the open because it was all very hush hush in the past you know you don't do that and you don't want to um uh, yeah, part of it, I, I think for maybe some Native writers was wanting to be protective of our families and communities because we didn't want to play into those old stereotypes like, oh, the drinking and oh, the, you know, um, mm -hmm. but, but of course damage was done too. And so, but it's really terrific that now there, there are books like yours that are incredibly helpful and inspiring. Um, in a way that's not cheesy. I mean, deeply for me, it was spiritual. It was a spiritual reaction. But I wanted to mention your your work with the at youth risk. Um, I mean, at risk youth, at youth risk, at risk youth really comes through the authenticity um, of the details and just your insight into what's what what they're going through emotionally. You know, it's so palpable throughout the book. And I'm wondering if any of them have read your book. If you've heard from any. Uh, kids that you've worked with before, um, if they had a chance to read your book, um, I haven't heard from. I haven't heard it yet. I mean, so far, um, yeah. I think that you know. I don't know if they were really readers in that sense. You know what I mean? Right. right. Like I remember when I was working with them, I would give. I would buy stuff from. That's one of my favorite things to do is to buy books for people, um, mm -hmm. and um, because you know, like I, I like buying books, and you know, like I have a ton. And I like, I need another excuse to go buy more. <laughs> so if I can buy them and give them to people, and that that help, that works. Um, and so, but yeah, no, I haven't heard directly from from youth, um, but you know, like different community members definitely have read it, and yeah, just um, getting like just you know hearing amazing, very kind, very kind remarks is just, you know it's it's uplifting, and I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful. You know, people will DM me mm -hmm. or eat some amazing healing words, and I'm very grateful for that. And that reminds me of one of the many scenes in the book, because you're just talking about powerful and healing, um, that this one scene that struck me as so powerful was baby Tortuga's death. Um, mm -hmm. And she is, for those who haven't read the book, she is Ever and Jimena's. Uh, baby and she has a rare form of dwarfism and her lungs aren't going to be able to develop and so she doesn't live for very long um but as i read that section the hairs were rising on my arms as if i too could feel her energy reaching beyond the page because um here actually i have a little um i think i copied out a little piece to read from her so people know okay so there is something extraordinary about her energy, which is electric and moves people. When family gathers to see her, they are suddenly mending fences and offering apologies. Um, she, the quote of, about her that, from what you wrote is that she drew compassion from our skin with an invisible electricity. She did more work for our families in her three days than I did in two decades. And I was just so curious. Um, where this character, this episode came from, just, oof. Um, yeah, that, yeah. Was, that, that was just really um, intense, intense. And, and yeah, no, no, I, um, 
I lost a daughter in those same circumstances. Oh, man. And so that's where that's where it comes from. But um, so Adeseli's chapter is, you know, really important to me for a number of reasons, because, um, it, you know, like in order to kind of cope and figure out how to understand certain things in my life, like I was able to look at the world through Adeseli's eyes and it gave me enough distance. You know what I mean? Where I didn't completely break. So there's um, there's a moment in the novel where Adeseli's like she just she first gets to the hospital she sees baby Tortuga in the incubator and she almost like loses it. Like she starts sobbing and she's like, you know, I can't, you know, like, and she leaves the, and she leaves the room because um, psychologically I had to leave the room, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? And so without a celly, I left the room and then mm -hmm. she goes to Mexico to get her grandparents to bring them back to the U S so that they can, you know, spend time with her. Um, but but I needed to leave, you know, like it was hard for me to write that, like, okay, I got to go. And so I went without a celly to Mexico and that gave me some breathing room to keep writing the story. Uh -huh. um, but, um, but yeah, so, yeah. So I meant I was just, you know, recounting the emotions that I had at that time. And as a parent, you know, we're supposed to be able to, to do something, you know, whenever we're sick, we're supposed to give them medicine. We hold them, we give them, soup we we love on them um we kiss them you know like we do these things that 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 fix them we were supposed to fix them and in this situation you, there's nothing you can do and it's the most powerlessness i have ever felt in my life and i've never felt um that powerless since i'm so sorry and you're sharing that just makes it that much you were able to transform that into something that was so powerful and beautiful i mean not i mean it's tragic and i anyway it it there were just so many moments in this book that were like that where something is is just so tragic and yet again you're not leaving us there it's like you're finding mm -hmm. this meaning and this way of looking at it that uh, that is transformative that is yeah, it's it just gives a lot of readers who've been through, you know, similar tragedies, it gives them something like hope if they haven't gotten to that place where you've gotten in the writing of this, there's hope for them that they might get there too. And, um, and that, yeah, then that, that was kind of the magic of, yeah. of um, my daughter who was named after my mother, I named her Virgiline Faith Okia. And so similar to the main character names, um, um, baby turtle after his mother. Um, but there was this this interesting magic that happened where um, people just from from Oklahoma and then from the my um, from her mother's community all just came just flocked to the hospital. There was just something like like it says there was some the only way I can describe it is in the electricity. Like they just she just brought a ton of people together and everybody was like um, just in this healing kind of a space. And I wanted to capture that you know, as her memory is that she was able to, to do things for her family yeah. that, you know, like, you know, we might not be able to do in a lifetime and that, that and that, you know, that trans transfers into the novel as well, where baby turtle is able to, to do that for the Gima Saddle family. Yeah. On a completely different, I should, I, I'm hogging all the, the questions here. And so I should look at some of the ones, um, that were sent in from other folks that I flagged. And here's a fun one. Um, so a person was congratulating you on winning the, the 2023 Penn Hemingway Award for debut novel, just so, so, so massively deserved. And they asked, I was curious if the author could share how he first learned of this honor and maybe what it means to him. Yeah, no, that was like, that was like a really interesting moment experience there um, because um, I had, I had uh, booked this trip to Montana in um, back in November for 2022. And, and, you know, like the words, like nobody knows who's going to win. And, um, and then, you, you know, like we don't get word about, you don't know if you're going to make the long list or the short list or whatever it is. And then, you don't you know, so you don't know if you're going to be on the short list for like two weeks before Right. And so I had already booked this trip to Montana and, um, and I couldn't, you know, I didn't want to back out of it. You know, like I felt 
and like I was excited to go one. Um, so I ended up, you know, like, no, let's keep, I want to keep this trip in place. And then, um, and then sent like a, an acceptance letter to, with my team at Algonquin as, you know, just in case I did win. But the interesting thing about it was that, you know, we, I had gotten to um, Livingston, Montana and, um, and the award ceremony was the exact same time. The exact same time my event was happening, that's when the award ceremony was happening. As I was in my hotel room, it started, it, the initial beginning started about an hour before I was to get up and start talking. Um, so I was back in my hotel room trying to see, well, maybe they'll say debut author, you know, the Penn Hemingway will be announced first. But, uh, you know, I started watching it for about 45 minutes and they hadn't gotten to the to the Hemingway Award. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, okay, well, I'm gonna, the book show was just up the road. So I was like, okay, well, it'll probably happen sometime while I'm, you know, talking with the audience. And then uh, afterwards, I'll find out and then then, then I'll know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I go up to the bookstore and, um, and it's like, like two minutes, two minutes before, you know, like I'm sitting on, sitting to the side and you know how this is right before you're getting ready to go up, you like sit to the side and then they're going to, they're going to come up to the podium and they're going to, they're going to announce you and then you get up. And so I'm sitting there two minutes before waiting for that start happening. And then all of a sudden my phone ring, my agents calling me and I was like, well, you know, I, I don't get calls from my agent very often. Um, so, <laughs> so I jumped up. And I ran to the bathroom where I have some privacy and I answered it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then she told me, she was like, you won the Penn Hemingway award. Mm-hmm. And um, so like two minutes before I go up, I, I learned that I'd won it. And then, so then I go out, I go out of the bathroom and then they announced me. And then, so right there live with, with those individuals um, there in Livingston, Montana, I was able, I, I, I now was like, I just found out two minutes ago that I won. Mm-hmm. And they were like, so kind of generous like, like a standing ovation everybody stood up and started clapping and mm-hmm. it was just like a just like a magical kind of a day um but yeah having won that it was was amazing like i you know i had i had um always dreamed of that you know the Penn hemingway award was like wow man that would be amazing if i ever won that that was one of those awards that you know from a from a young age from when i first started out when i first started writing literary fiction that's hard to fantasize about. Well, what if one day I won this award, that award? Um, the Penn Hemingway was one of those awards. So it was very surreal and a kind of a magical kind of experience. And did you have a good time in Boston when you were there or to celebrate it? Oh, yeah, yeah. We went to Boston to celebrate, and that was nice. I've never been to Boston before. And that was super, super nice as well. They had like a little, they had an event there that was, um, that was pretty, you know, pretty nice to have you know, people show up and have that whole event, but it was, I enjoyed it a great deal. It was at the JFK library, which is an amazing space. Um, So yeah, it was a ton of fun for sure. Well, I am so glad I was just, I was so excited for you. I was living vicariously like, oh, you know, the trip to Boston and everything. Um, So another uh, question from uh, that someone sent in in advance. Um, Can you tell us the story of how this book made it to print? I am an inspiring Asian American Pacific Islander author, MFA student, and always curious to hear from debut authors, particularly um, writers of color, about how they came to be published authors. Okay. Yeah. So for me, I connected with my agent through through Twitter. So Twitter mm-hmm. has these pitch events, and I, and I think there's a, almost every genre has a pitch event on Twitter. And, um, and so there's, there's a event called DV Pit. Um, diverse voices pitch event mm-hmm. and um, so you what you do is you come up with a tweet size pitch and on the day of when they have this event then you tweet you tweet it out with a certain hashtag dv hashtag and um, and so agents will go on and, and and watch that that stream of dv pit you know showing up mm-hmm. and then they'll read the little um, um, blurb there and see if that's something that they like if they like it they click on it um, and I think I had five different agents from agencies in New York and LA that clicked on it. And, um, and then that's how I connected with my agent, um, Ali Levick. And so that, that was, and it's kind of, it can be hard to kind of make connections, you know, um, you know, cause sometimes I think at that point, up until that point, you know, you either just send out a query letter, like a, you know, a cold query letter to random agents and then, or you could connect with people at a conference like a writer's mm-hmm. conference, but those are the only two ways that I knew how to connect. 
And sometimes it was hard, like getting to a writer's conference for me meant like, I got to find a babysitter for my kids. And cause like, I'm a single parent and um, I, there's all this stuff I got to juggle and I can't miss too much work. Cause you know, I got to pay bills, stuff like that comes up. And so it was hard for me to get to a conference, but this pitch event was something that I could do. Um, and so I was really, really fortunate to be able to connect in, in that way. So, but that, that was my experience. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I'm so glad that it worked out and that you found the right, the right, per, the right person to represent you, to get you in the right, yes. uh, with the right publisher, the right editor. Um, and, oh, this is a total non sequitur, but I read somewhere, th uh, the importance of Alice Monroe as, as someone who inspired you as a writer who inspired you. And yes. when I saw that, I, I went, oh my God, cause she was so important to me when I was learning about structure. Um, yes. I would actually take apart some of her stories and I would diagram them like, cause she, sometimes it's like she was stuffing a whole novel in one story mm -hmm. and she would, she would switch point of view. She would take us through a hundred years. And I was like, how does she do this? So I would actually write out, she does, okay, this section is in from this point of view. And then, oh, she just skips and she doesn't even say how much time, you know, I would diagram them out. So I was curious in what way that she, what in what way she was instrumental to you when you were focusing on um, developing more as a writer. Yeah, so I lent, you know, Alice Monroe came into the picture right as um, shortly after I started at the II. And um, so this is when I first go into like, well, I'm going to be a literary fiction because I was I was fascinated by like the social justice aspect of literary fiction and also just that kind of brutal honesty. I really like that that about literary fiction. So Alice Monroe was one of the authors that kind of introduced me into that genre. And um, but similar where I dissected her like that, where I would underline circle. I was just like, you know, reread 20 times you know, certain short stories that she had just to figure out how she was captured, picked up on her rhythm, like the way she, you know, her rhythm or pacing and um, and the way her voice worked, like um, where I can, and I did the same thing with Mar similar with Marquez as well, where I'm, if I read somebody else's work, I can see a Monroe sentence, you know, like I can, I, I can tell, oh, she's influenced by Monroe too. Um, and so if you read Turtle Gimasato's chapter, heavy heavily influenced by Monroe um and also Hey Shades chapter has that mm -hmm. kind of like pacing and that that rhythm um Alice Monroe rhythm um so but yeah very you know gave me an opportunity to, to to understand foundationally some of the voice aspects after a unique distinct voice and um and then I built off of that to create something that's more colloquial to my community right. uh, or my communities like Cherokee and Kiowa um so, so yeah, I think that was, that was probably the, you know, the way that she influenced, influenced me. Thank you. I, I could keep talking to you, but we're uh, down to our last minute here. So, okay. Is there something that you want to leave with the viewers? Yeah. That, that you just want to say about your book that, or whatever. Let me see. I mean, I'm just really grateful that, you know, um, you were, hung out with me today for for a little bit let me get get a chance to to talk about every saddle family and um and um and then you know like i'm looking forward to to future discussions uh paperback is going to be released in july and so i think we'll probably start building up to that here in the next few months or next couple months and um i'm working on book two so book two got the green light and um, with the editor, and I will, you know, like we're still in the back and forth revisions part of it, you know, you know, tightening it up, tweaking it here and there. Uh, we're still in that phase, but um, but it's it's coming down the line. That's so exciting! I'm just so happy for you, and I'm happy for us, the readers. So I will be, I'm really looking forward to that next one. Yeah, thank you so much, Mona. And it was like a dream come true that I got to, I got to have a discussion with Mona Susan Power. That's that's, I'm going to be like in a daze for I, a long time. I, tomorrow, I'm going to be like, wow, that happened. And I was just so nervous because I'm like, oh, I've, I don't think I've ever moderated before. And I'm clearly not good at it. So I was like, let you me did, do it. You did I wonderful. Praying, you did. I said a prayer to my ancestors and your ancestors. I'm like, please help me do a good job for Oscar because he deserves the best. So. Oh, thank you. No, it was great. It was perfect. <laughs>
Have a great night, everyone. Take care. Thank you. That wraps up our Hennepin County Library event with Oscar Hokia. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Allie Hazelwood. Allie Hazelwood holds a doctorate in neuroscience and a faculty position at a prestigious university. She also moonlights as one of the most popular romance authors writing today. Her latest book, Loathe to Love You, is a much-anticipated collection of three STEMness novellas published separately in 2022. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Clubbook, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.